If I were to mention the name Irma Bombeck this morning, how many of you recognize that name? You know, her name once upon a time was a household word. And it's actually hard to believe that she's been dead and gone from us now for nearly 27 years. Because it seems like just yesterday. But somehow, when we're not looking, time has a way of getting away from us. I looked at my driver's license picture that they made recently. I thought they'd made a mistake. I told Norma, I said, Norma, they put Peepaw's picture on my driver's license. Turns out it was my picture. I had a good friend recently he had his 75th birthday. We were talking about old times because we've been friends now for more than 65 years. And I remembered visiting with him when he turned 70. He says, you know, I, the only difference in being 70 and being 30 is that I realize I'm 70 when I try to do things that used to be easy to do and they're not easy to do anymore. And said, that's when I realize how old I am. I said, yeah, I understand. I said, my mind's always writing checks. My body can't cash. Anyway, back to Irma Bombeck. She was a humorist. She was a journalist. She was an author. And she managed to find humor in the everyday experiences of life. She found humor in being a wife and a mother. And she wrote a lot of popular books. She was a TV personality. She gave us a lot of very memorable quotes. One of her memorable quotes is, Seize the moment. Remember all those women on the Titanic who waved off the dessert cart. She also once said, I am not a glutton. I am an explorer of food. Many of Irma's sayings had to do with food. For instance, she said, when the going gets tough, the tough make cookies. To my way of thinking, that's a pretty solid suggestion. One of her popular books was entitled, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, Why Am I Always in the Pits? You wondered where all this was going, didn't you? Well, that brings us around to our text this morning. Because that phrase, if life's a bowl of cherries, what am I, why am I always in the pits? That could apply to the prophet of God that we refer to as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Because you see, Jeremiah looked up one day and all he could see above him was a circle of blue. And he looked down and all he could see was mud squishing between his toes. And that was when the prophet of God, Jeremiah, wondered how he had ended up at the bottom of a pit. Because here he was looking up at the sky, mud squishing between his toes, hated by the very people that he wanted to save. Hated and despised 
by the people God had called him to minister to. Hated and despised by the people God had called him to preach to. You see, Jeremiah was just a young man when he was called of God to be a prophet. Now, many of us remember Miss Cleo on television. Well, Jeremiah wasn't that kind of prophet. And most of us can remember Jean Dixon. I remember her quite well because she had a syndicated newspaper column back when I worked at the newspaper, and every day I had to cut out Jean Dixon's column and place it in the paper. And Jeremiah wasn't a prophet like Jean Dixon, if you remember that name. Jeremiah was a prophet of God. And he didn't tell people they were going to be lucky in love. And he didn't tell people they were going to win the lottery. But it was his job to proclaim the Word of God for the people of his day to hear. Jeremiah's father, Hilkiah, was a priest. And it looked as though Jeremiah was destined to follow in the footsteps of his father. But actually, that wouldn't have been a bad life. Because the priest and his family were provided for. His chores would have entailed reading and interpreting God's Word. He would have had the responsibility of making and preparing the sacrifices. And he would have to be a presence, in addition to this, around the temple. But in the thirteenth year of Josiah's reign over Judah... God stepped into Jeremiah's life. And God informed Jeremiah that he was going to be his spokesman. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verses 4 through 6. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am but a child. God said, I ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. O Lord, I can't do that. I am but a child. God... Asked Jeremiah to do something. And Jeremiah did what lots of folks do. He made excuses. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine making excuses to God for why we can't do things? In this particular instance, Jeremiah says, God, I, I can't be your spokesman. I can't preach to the nations. God, I, I'm just a child. But God wasn't going to take no for an answer. So Jeremiah had one of two options. He could either be obedient to God, or he could be disobedient to God. There just wasn't much middle ground between those two to waffle in. Today, some 2,500 years later, it's the same way. You and I have two options Obedience to God or disobedience to God? And it was obedience to God that brought Jeremiah to the predicament we find him in in our text this morning. It's in Jeremiah chapter 38. 
Then Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, and Jeuel, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malachi, heard the words Jeremiah spoke to the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth forth to the Chaldeans shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey, and they shall live. Thus saith the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in the city, and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand. For the king is not he that can do anything against you. Then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamelech, that was in the court of the prison. And they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. Now when Abedmelech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Abedmelech went forth out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they've done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they've cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for is there, there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abedmelech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. Now, the dungeon mentioned in the King James translation is more accurately a cistern. It would have been about 20 feet deep. It would have been much wider at the bottom than at the top. More of a bell-shaped cistern. And the walls would have been made of plaster. It was for water storage, but it was empty. But having had water stored there, there's mud at the bottom. So here's Jeremiah. He's preached the message God had called him to preach. But he finds himself mud squishing between his toes in the bottom of this pit looking up. Twenty feet above him there's this opening and he sees the blue sky. And Jeremiah, the prophet of God, is wondering how the world fell out from under him. What went wrong? You know, at some point in all of our lives we've been there. At some point in all of our lives we've been at the bottom of the pit and we've been looking up and wondering how the world fell from beneath us. Maybe the collapse was a health issue of some kind. Maybe you noticed a lump or you had a pain in your chest, but whatever it was, suddenly 
one day you're at the bottom of the pit. Or maybe it was an economic problem or a marital issue or a spiritual struggle of some type. But for whatever reason it was, when those times come, we feel forsaken by God. And in those times it feels like our prayers don't get any further up than the ceiling. That's where Jeremiah found himself in our text. At the bottom of the pit. He had been born in a small village not far from Jerusalem. After he was called by God as a prophet, he saw Israel turn away from God. And as Israel turned away from God, they were defeated internally by immorality. They were defeated externally by military might. He saw Jerusalem captured. He saw Jerusalem pillaged. He saw its residents forced into slavery or exile. And with all that, the people still ignored Jeremiah's warnings. They still ignored Jeremiah as he pleaded with them to turn back to God. Now, being a prophet doesn't necessarily make you the most popular man in town. Because you see, Jeremiah's message that God told him to preach to the people was not motherhood, apple pie, and lower taxes. That's not what he was talking about. God's prophets of the Old Testament, they preached a turn or burn kind of message. It was a repent or else kind of message. It was not the gospel of prosperity. It wasn't some kind of a feel-good sermon. In fact, those old prophets of, of God in the Old Testament would have starved to death trying to be TV preachers in the 21st century. Because I don't envision Jeremiah always smiling, talking in a syrupy tone of voice and telling people how they could be prosperous and experience their best life now. Because the message of Jeremiah was a message of God. It wasn't some cotton candy message. You know, it's hard. But you know, sometimes preaching has to be corrective in nature. Sometimes preaching, you have to deal with things like gossip. You have to deal with loose talk. You have to deal with personality, or you have to deal with personal responsibility. Sometimes you have to preach on subjects like giving, and you have to preach on faithfulness. And you know, the funny thing is, generally speaking, those kind of sermons don't bother people that are living right. You can preach a sermon on gossiping and, and backbiting and, and talking about people. And if somebody's not doing those things, they think it's a good sermon. You can preach on being faithful and folks that are faithful don't mind a sermon on faithfulness. You can preach about giving as you've been prospered. And if folks are giving as they've been prospered, they'll just say Amen. So if you're not a gossip-bearing tale-bearer, those kind of sermons are okay. But, but, if a sermon hits a little too close to home, suddenly the guy that was the most wonderful preacher in the world last week is a low-life sheep-killing dog this week. It's like the preacher that was preaching one Sunday and he decided to just do a scattergun load. And he started out talking about drinking. 
And he was talking about the evils of beverage alcohol. And there was a good sister about four rows back over against the aisle that said, Amen, brother, you preach. He said, in gambling, people that are spending their money on casinos and gambling and playing poker, Amen, brother, you preach it. He said, in smoking, Amen, brother, you preach it. And while I'm on the subject, snuff dipping, and she said, you done quit preaching and gone to meddling now. That's kind of the way things work sometimes. You see, it seems that this one particular sermon Jeremiah preached, the powers that be decided that that just wasn't the kind of thing he needed to be talking about. And he just wasn't doing a great job for public morale. His message was too negative. And so they decided they'd do something about it. Now, in our day and time, folks are a little more civilized. In our day and time, if you don't like the preacher, you just politely ask him to move on. Or you do something a little bit subtle like take his name off the sign. By the way, my name's in a locked case out there and I've got the key to it. Or you do something subtle like change the locks on his office. Oftentimes, folks just get mad and go somewhere else. You know something? Over the years, I've done this now for about 53 years. Have you ever noticed something about folks that leave the church? More often than not, folks that leave the church have an honesty issue. They never take the time to look within themselves for the problem. Now folks are not faithful sometimes for all kinds of reasons. They just don't want to be there because they were sick and nobody called to check on them. Never mind they had missed services for such long periods of time when they weren't sick that nobody thought anything about the fact they weren't at church. Or, well, I just don't feel like the church is doing things the way that they should be done. That's another way of saying I left because I didn't get my way. Well, I don't like the preacher because, and you just fill in the blank. Well, I had to leave because I didn't like singing all those old songs and no new songs. Well, I couldn't worship there anymore because they just sang too many new songs and never sang any of the old songs. Well, I had to go somewhere else because the songs were always sung too fast. Well, I couldn't worship there because the songs were always sung too slow. Well, I just couldn't keep worshiping over at Bug Tussle Flats because I just didn't like the Bible classes. You take your pick. The congregation's too big. The congregation's too little. I would to God that folks that decide to quit the church would just be honest. It'd be refreshing sometimes if folks would just take some personal responsibility. If they would just fess up and say, well, I left. I left because I wanted to. And after all, it's all about me. That's why in our text, we see Jeremiah at the bottom of a well. You see, it wouldn't have been right to just outright kill a prophet of God. But, if he happened to be at the bottom of a well, 
a well with tapered sides with of plaster. And there was no food. And he starved to death. Well, these things happen. Jeremiah wasn't the only person in the Bible that ended up in the pits. Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers and then they sold him into slavery. And they did all that because they were jealous of him. Daniel was thrown into the den of lions because of his political enemies. They were jealous of him and they flattered Darius into setting a trap for him. Well, here we find Jeremiah in the pit because he proclaimed the word of God. Here's the thing. Most of us know what it's like to look at the world from the bottom of a pit. At some point in our lives, we've been there. Maybe it was our fault, maybe it wasn't. But that doesn't change the fact that at the bottom of the pit, it's not a nice place to be. But guess what? There are lessons we can learn even in the pits. Because it's in the pits that we learn to look up. In the pits, the best view is often to look up. We can see the mud at the bottom of the pit squishing between our toes, but that's kind of depressing. We can focus on the stark, barren walls in the pits, but they're devoid of a foothold, and that's just discouraging. But we can look up, and that helps us see a lot of things. Because when we're in the pits of life, looking up helps us to see God. Too often when we're living the good life, God becomes an afterthought. When everything's going well, we've got money in the bank, the kids are healthy, there's no clouds in our sky, there's no storms in our life. We kind of think sometimes we delude ourselves into, that, into thinking we deserve it. I mean, after all, I deserve this kind of a good life. I'm a nice person. I've worked hard. And in the good times, if we're not careful, sometimes God doesn't enter the picture. Oh, sure, we, we offer thanks when we sit down to eat. Before we eat, we offer thanks. We're not like little Johnny. Little Johnny sat down at the table, and he just grabbed his fork, and he just started eating. And his mother said, Johnny, we need to offer thanks before we eat. He said, Mom, I'm looking here. Everything on this table is leftovers. It's been blessed before. Well, we're not like that. Even if it's leftovers, we usually offer thanks for it. When the prayer is being led at worship, we try to pray as well. I mean, that's the right thing to do. But when things go south, it's a whole different matter. When we start to have problems, we got God on speed dial. Hello, God, my child is seriously ill. Hello, God, my finances are in serious trouble. Hello, God, i got some problems, God. I need some help. Sometimes... Things have to head south for us to improve our perspective. It takes sometimes a serious wake-up call for us. That's what David acknowledged. It's in Psalms 121. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. So sometimes, being in the pits teaches us that we need to rely on God. Looking up causes us to see beyond our present reality and see a preferred future.
in the pits. It's easy to look around at the dark walls and the murky bottom and just give up. We decide, well, this is it. It's over. I might as well give up and die. But then we look up. And we see the blue of the sky above us. And we can look beyond the darkness and the mire at the bottom of the pit. We can look beyond the walls of the pit and see where we could be and where we should be. What we have to do is realize what it would be like to be out of the pit. Walking around. Enjoying the sunshine. We cannot dwell on the negative forever. If we dwell on the negative, we will become negative, bitter, old men and women, regardless of our age. And that's what Paul had in mind, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, forgetting the things that are behind, and reaching forth unto the things that are before, I press toward the prize for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In the pits we learn to look up, but we also learn to look down. You might not believe this, but there are worse places to be than the bottom of the pit. When we're in the bottom of the pit and we look down and we see the ground and we see the mud, we realize that we are still on the right side of the grass. You know, heaven is my home. Like the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Heaven's my home, but folks, I'm not homesick. I'm not ready to get up a group to go this afternoon. So if we wake up in the morning, and we look in the mirror, and there's something looking back at us, and quite honestly, when I first get up in the morning, I'm not sure what that something is that's looking back at me, but there's something looking back at me, Getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror and seeing something looking back, that's not really a bad way to start a day, is it? Matthew Henry was an English preacher in the late 1600s. One day while he was traveling, he was robbed. And what he had to say regarding that misfortune is extremely enlightening. He said, God, I'm thankful, first of all, that I was never robbed before. And I'm thankful, God, secondly, because... Though they took my purse, they didn't take my life. And thirdly, God, I'm thankful because they took everything I had. It wasn't much. And God, I'm most thankful that I was the one who was robbed. And it was not I that robbed someone. In the pits, we learn who our friends are. And who they aren't. In our text, we learn that Jeremiah is in the pit. And while he's there, he wonders if anyone cares. And while he wonders if anyone cares, someone's going to bat for him. There was someone in the king's house who had heard what happened to Jeremiah. Ebed-Melech, one of the eunuchs, told the king that the men had done evil putting Jeremiah in this pit. And so the king arranges for Ebed-Melech to take men and pull Jeremiah from the pit. It's when you're down. It's when you're in the pits. That's when you find out who your real friends are. 
Sometimes it's disappointing. And it's also enlightening to find out who does and who doesn't stick with you. But then at least you know where you stand. But then it's refreshing to find those that stick with you in thick and in thin. It was Cicero who said, once friends are proved by adversity. Euripides said, friends show their love in times of trouble. You remember as we've been studying Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he said in Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm persuaded, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't ever forget that. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and all the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. And if you take nothing else away from this this morning, take this. God will not forget us in the pit. The promise of Hebrews 13 and verse 5 is, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. God didn't forget Joseph in the pit. He didn't forget Jeremiah. He didn't forget Daniel. And God will not forget me or you, no matter how dark or how deep or how muddy that pit might be. But, what did all of these have in common? They were living God's kind of life. They were living it God's way. Can that be said of us this morning? Are we living our lives within the will of God? If you're not living your life within the will of God, if there are changes you need to make, and we can help you make those changes, come, give us the opportunity to help you as together we stand. And while we sing.